Hi there, I'm Phil Preston and welcome to The Purpose Edge, where we delve into the career and life stories of our guests. And as usual, at the end, I'll add a couple of extra thoughts. My guest today is Belle Ryan, who's had a 20 plus year career in art therapy, counseling, facilitation and mental health training. And today she uses the power of creativity to help individuals, teams and workplaces thrive. So let's find out a bit more about her. Welcome to The Purpose Edge, Belle. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to connect. And I've got to admit, I'm a bit of a convert because I've attended a session you ran, which I loved. And we're going to explore art therapy and creativity and the role that plays a little bit later on. But first of all, I just want uh, you to talk through a little bit of your backstory because you grew up, I think, outside of Adelaide in a country area. Is that correct? Sure. I grew up in a little country town. Um, To give you an idea, there was... 80 people at school. <laughs> I The little town we had was one street. It didn't even have a pub. Uh, the football club was sort of the, the centre of the town and where most of the action happened. So grew up on a farm, um, had a fairly close-knit family, um, very community-orientated, and um, life was pretty good. And it sounds like one of those schools where it was probably composite classes, was it? Yeah, so um, yeah, we were always in with the other year levels. Uh, so yeah, quite often, um, yeah, my cousin with cousins who were a year older than me, we were always in the same class. So, so it was really nice to have a bit of a mixed, a mixed class. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. And I'm I'm glad to hear. Although you didn't have a pub, you had a footy club. And I'm, as you mentioned, I, I could imagine a lot of the town activity would revolve around the football team. Yeah, in um, winter and netball, and then in summer it was sort of tended to be cricket and tennis uh, was sort of things. And I played softball as well, but we would have to travel quite away. Um, it was sort of that that country um, community thing where you travel lots of kilometres to play sport, but it's such a pivotal part of who you are and what you learn and and how life rolls really. And and I guess your dad would have been doing some of that transportation um, in your family. Is is that correct? Yeah, mum and dad. So dad um, was actually the president of the football club at one point. He was a life member. Mum ran the canteen. Um, so, and quite often, actually, he was the football coach because there were, I've got two older brothers and three cousins who were all similar ages. Um, they were all in the same football team. So I always remember we had a carload of people going to the football really early hours of the morning and um, being part of yeah, the community spirit and everything that goes with that. So, yeah, my dad is a very um, special person in my life as well and that's where a lot of what I do now is based on those experiences. And just to complete the setup before we get into that story, you were one of several children and you you say you were shy. So what, what was your – where were you in the pecking order in your family? I was youngest. So um, my cousins who lived on the next farm, they had five children And we had four um, and I was the youngest of all of us. So we were quite often sort of (laughs) placed in all together um, as well. So I'm the youngest and my cousin Prudence, who's three months older than me, um, we sort of hung out and we were probably best friends as we grew up as well. So pretty fortunate to have my cousin um, be one of my closest friends as well. I've seen you give a talk on this and you talk about, you put up a photo of you when you're 10 years old. And you say, looking at me there, you see pain, struggle and isolation. So why was that? 
One of the biggest experiences and why I reference my dad is that he was my safe place. And when I was about nine, mum and dad, we went to Adelaide. My older siblings were at boarding school. And I can remember there was lots of medical appointments and things like that. And they were um, having a conversation in the car on the way home about whether they would tell the community what had just happened. And as a nine-year-old, I was sort of a bit like, oh, this seems a bit (laughs) serious. Um, And so they decided, so we're talking the mid-80s, so this wasn't that common in those days. He actually was diagnosed with lung cancer. He had a um, huge tumour in his lungs. And we since now know that it was probably from um, asbestos exposure. Wow. Um, But what happened was they had a really big conversation about whether they would be open about what was happening. And um, they decided that they would so that the rumour rumours wouldn't get around in the small country town and everyone sort of knew what was happening. What happened then was for me, and I think this has been a really influential thing in my life, was the way people reacted to that. So lots of people didn't know what to do. And so they would avoid us. They'd cross the street rather than talk to us. If they did talk to us, they couldn't wait to get out of there. And so for me, that happened at school as well. Obviously, people were talking about things. And it left me feeling completely isolated and alone. So my cousin Prudence, their family had already moved to Adelaide for their schooling. Um, So I lost that part of my security, but also my older siblings were away. And I was separated from mum and dad quite a bit because they had to come to Adelaide for treatment. And so I think that's been really pivotal in how I now help people to express what's happening in their world, the good, the bad, the ugly, the hard, the challenging Um, but also celebrating success as well, that it's really influential because I did feel so isolated and alone because no one wanted to talk about what was happening, yet it was obviously happening. Um, And through that process, I used to turn to art. I actually still do it sometimes um, when I'm feeling anxious or stressed or um, alone or isolated. I would do this particular doodle um, constantly Um, And what that did was really calm me and regulate me and help me express things that no one wanted to talk about. But I'd also do drawings and poetry and that type of thing. So I think creativity helped me to express the stuff that no one wanted to talk about or there just wasn't words for either. So it was a huge transformational thing to happen in my life and has really shaped who I am today. So when you were was it nine or 10, how do you, how did you process how other people were behaving or reacting at that point in time versus how you would be processing that today? Very good question. I, I think we live in a different time as well. You know, we're a lot more aware of emotions rather than sweeping them under the carpet. But I think one of the things, um, if I was to deal with it now, I can feel in my body or my mind, my whole being when something's off. And so I will go to art and do a creative process, but I also am really diligent in having my own therapy, even though I have all of these skills to hold space for other people. It's important that I have that space held for me 
as well. So I think it's about finding those spaces where you feel safe and secure. And for me, the art holds that beautifully um, and also brings insight into what do I do now with this um, once you go through the art therapy process as well. So it probably would be very similar, but it would be about guiding myself through that, but also having other people support me. And I think when you're 10, um, you know, your emotional maturity, I had to grow up fairly quickly. And um, I think I would make sure that there was a lot more joy and playfulness, um, which I did get um, from, I had another, other cousins on the other side who I used to stay with a lot. And that sense of freedom and playfulness and just letting the darkness be on hold for a while and just being in the moment was a really important part of who I was and feeling safe and secure as well. And does the doodling or whatever the art expression form is at the time, um, it's helping you process things. Is it also meditative in any sense? Yeah, definitely. And depends on what medium I use. So sometimes I might even go for a walk in nature, like I need fresh air um, is a really important part of my well-being processes. Uh, so, and being a country girl, you know, that we spent so much time um, outside. So it might be that I would use sticks and bark and things like that, that I find in nature. Like it doesn't have to actually be drawing or painting and that type of thing. It's just about what's being mirrored back to me. What's happening now? What do I do with this? So it's getting insight in various ways. So yeah, it's, um, it is certainly meditative, but also sometimes just releasing it out of yourself is really important as well. So it's about, say, for instance, if I was angry, um, which as a human being, we do <laughs> get angry, um, just doing a scribble picture, like scribbling it out is putting it somewhere. Um, so it doesn't come out in other ways. So it's trying to deal with it and process it so that it doesn't build up and um, come out in ways that it may not be as nice as I would like them to be. Mm. And so I understand you went from this school of 80 children to a boarding school of 700. Yes. <laughs> however, a couple of weeks in, you found yourself back at home for a certain reason. Yeah. So um, the first weekend that we got to go home, um, one of the boarding supervisors came and got my sister and I to say we're going home early. And at the time, I remember thinking, oh, great, we get to go home early and that's exciting until I realised why that was and um, Dad died the next morning and that there was a knowing that that was happening, um, that it was going to happen, but that also was that real sense of loss and shift and change because I was also in an environment at boarding school that was new and very, very different to what I had experienced. Um, it was an all-girls school. We had to wear uniforms. Um, you know, you it was very, very different. And so when I returned to school, it was a huge experience of overwhelm and the like being in the spotlight, which I didn't really like uh, because of what had happened. And that sort of has shaped who I am too um, now because I'm really about being present to people who are going through an experience and not necessarily overdoing 
their expression to them. Um, so I think sometimes when people are going through distressing things, we can overdo it, but we can also underdo it. So it's sort of like a little bit of the sense of people do it from a caring place. I think that's the thing, but they don't always know what to do. And for me, I was 12, nearly 13 when that happened. And that has really shaped who I am too, about getting real about people's life experiences. And life isn't the highlight reel. Um, things happen and it's about how do we be present with one another and, and help people through that without taking over from them or making it a big deal. So when you were at the boarding school with 700 other girls, I mean, I, I can't imagine how would people react given what you've just been through with your father passing? Yeah, so for me it was at first um, there was a lot of hugging me, let me like a fuss, made a fuss and bother sort of made over me and I felt very displaced actually and the uh, the safety of my sister, like luckily she was there, but I look back and think, wow, <laughs> she had to put up with a lot um, because she was my safe place and that's who I knew and that type of thing. So I probably clung to her a fair bit more than she probably would have liked. Um, but also after a week or so, everyone else goes back to their normal life and I felt isolated and alone once again and that sense of, I'm in a weird environment. How do I manage this? And everything has changed in my life. Um, yeah. And that's where um, life has a funny way of working out sometimes with now I sit and deal with people in transition all the time. Um, mm. Yeah. yeah. And um, working out how to manage that with them. But I also think I'm really, really informed from that process myself and my own lived experience of oh, how do we react to things? What do people need in this moment? And how are they? And sometimes it's not actually about doing anything. It's about being present. And I think that's the key to a lot of the things that I do. There's a lot more conversations, I guess, around death going on now in terms of some formal movements and organisations to promote those type of conversations. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And we know a lot more. And I actually ended up working um, for an organization called Canteen. So if I was um, an eight, like my age when dad died at the time that I worked there, I would have been one of the young people who were supported. So organizations like that are so fabulous because they're actually helping people through this experience so that they don't have to feel alone and isolated. And for me, it was very healing to be able to work with young people who were a reflection of me um, and my experiences as well. Not that they knew that, but um, it was certainly the way that I worked in, was informed by my own experiences as well. A lot of the words that are used in the media would always be around the tragedy, the tragic death or, uh, I don't know, sad something. Um, and in many cases, it's people just have lived full lives and, and perhaps it's it's almost happy that they've lived that full life, but in other cases, maybe it is more tragic. How, how do you evaluate what you see going on in the media? Given I actually saw you post something this morning um, about a particular event um, that's just played out. So tell us about that. Yeah, I find um, 
I can react a little bit to some of the sensationalised media reporting about death and people's experiences. So um, the reason why I react to it is that there are people every day going through life experiences like this. And I think on one hand it's really nice to normalise and talk about death and some of the challenges that people have in the world, but also um, there's a a sense of privacy or something that that grates on me a little bit as well um, that people have a lack of or that it becomes a big deal. I don't know. I'm just sort of thinking out loud now. You've talked about toxic positivity in the past. Is is that where we're going here? Yeah, potentially. Yeah. I think it's that thing of there's a balance there's a balance that we need to have between life experience being normalized, you know, that we need to talk about death in an open way, um, just like love and sadness and mental health and all of the things that we experience in life. But also I think I get a little bit frustrated with some of the terminology, you know, like when someone dies of cancer that they've lost their battle. And it's like they didn't lose the battle. They died of cancer. You know, and for lots of people that are living a battle every day, that isn't an illness like cancer. And so I think we need to be really mindful of the way we frame things up. Um, And some of the toxic positivity stuff that I talk about is that we're so quick to go to trying to find a reason for things or trying to find the light in something. So I remember when um, dad died, people talking about the fact that, oh, it happened, everything happens for a reason. I was like, well, yeah, that might be the case. But right now I can't see that because my dad just died. Um, Or, um, yeah, he's gone to a better place. And comments like that aren't really useful because it's like, well, for me, the better place is with me. Um, and so I think we need to just be mindful of some of the cliched statements that come out that um, are dehumanising and actually, while probably said with good intentions, are actually discounting the person who's standing there or the experience um, there as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine, and, and we've all been in a situation where we've had to be around other people and support other people quite often. It's, it's our reaction to our own discomfort perhaps is is reeling out these tropes or cliches? Yeah, fabulous. Uh, yeah, it is certainly our own discomfort. But the thing is too, I've worked in paediatric palliative care as well and death is still awkward to me um, and it should be because it's a human experience and it's sad and it's heartbreaking and there's so much happening in that. I recently had a friend who um, died of cancer and that experience for me while profession if I put my professional hat on I could give them advice and this is how we manage it but personally I was you know I was a mess because it was my friend who I care about and it was about the experience of loss and knowing that that was about to happen and you know the care and love but it's also I was very mindful of not to come out with the cliches and even with all my knowledge and I talk about this all the time, 
um, it still was tempting because of my own discomfort and we needed to sit with that and be with it. Um, but also my presence was probably more worth more than anything that I could say as well. I just want to go back to your um, schooling years for maybe the last time. I won't mm -hmm. drag you through schooling for any longer than this. But again, <laughs> um, you have talked about it before and it was an episode at your school where you were brought up, um, I think one of the house supervisors you had an issue with and then something played out after that. So tell us about that. Yeah, definitely. I don't know why, but I have a bit of the fairness. I'm a bit of a fairness police type person. And I think that's my hypervigilance of, of looking at situations and having to read them because of my earlier experiences. So I had a um, an issue with one of the boarding house supervisors who now that I look back was probably pushing, uh, crossing boundaries that they shouldn't have crossed. And I was told to, if I had a problem with things, to uh, like speak up about it. And so I wrote a letter <laughs> and um, it was very honest about my experiences. And so um, I got called into like, so it was the Catholic boarding school, into the sister superior's office. So, you know, it's pretty serious when you get called in there. And mum was called and we had a meeting the next day. And so for my punishment, and I don't like using the word punishment, but I think that's what they used for my out of character behaviour, which in actual fact, I was just doing what I was told to do. Um, I got sent to a psychologist and I'll never forget the sense of walking into the room. And once mum got out of the room, this he seemed really old at the time, but he probably wasn't. Um, he's he probably just, 35. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow. And actually when I was preparing for that talk that um, you know about, I got really emotional at this and I didn't realise how significant this was when I think about my purpose in life. He leant over and just asked me one question and I can't even remember what that question is because for the next hour, I cried and talked nonstop about my experience with dad. And I actually feel really emotional thinking about it now. There's something about it that really touches me because I think it's about that sense of being heard and having space held for you and being able to talk about the hard stuff in an unconditional safe space. And um, that's shaped me in so many ways and um yeah that he would have just asked the question that he probably asked every other client that day um but it was really significant about we all need that um and because of people's awkwardness or you know life happening and all that sort of stuff i i had felt like i hadn't had that space up until that point in such an obvious way and it was really significant. And I only had, I think, one or two more sessions. Like it wasn't like long-term therapy or anything, but it was. it's really about what I am, I do every day now is hold space for people to work through life. Yeah, and it's really important to me that people get that. So the word space has come up a few times here and creating a safe space or, or holding the space or having the space held, talk a bit more about what that 
is. In today's society, we're so busy being busy and on the the roller coaster of life and things like that, that I think we need time to connect to ourselves as well as each other and space, whether it's physical, mental, emotional space, um, really allows us to be who we are and to process our experiences. And so I don't know about you, but um, I've always been a person who say I'd be at a barbecue and then someone just spills their their life story to me. And I'm like, okay. They're like, oh, I've never told people that stuff before. But I think that's because I'm so tuned into listening and I have a certain um, bit of a no bullshit sort of presence about me as well, where it feels like people it, I'm not people aren't going to be judged. I think there's a knowing that I can hold that space um, as well. So it can happen in space can happen in the most quick, mundane sort of places like a barbecue where someone's present to each other, um, or it can be in the therapy space that I do as well. So um, when I go into workplaces and do um, staff wellbeing check-ins or workshops using creative tools, um, that's about pushing pause on the rest of the world for a little while and creating time to look at these things. And so I think the word space is is really important um, and it can happen on lots and lots of different levels. And so your career has ended up there, but what happened? So I know where you're at now and we've just heard where you've been. What happened in the middle? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to be a filmmaker when I left school. I've always been fascinated with people's stories and I didn't get, I couldn't get work. I probably didn't try that hard at that point. But now I look back on my life and think I was always destined to do what I'm doing now. I just didn't even know it existed. And mum came home from work one day and I think I was having a gin um, just, you know, in the afternoon. It's the first time ever that I had done that. And she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, just having a drink. And she was like, you're coming to work with me tomorrow. Um, so I got a little bit of a lecture about um, being at home, having a drink. Um, not that we're anti-drinking, but that's just, it wasn't necessarily, she's like, you do that with, you know, not home by yourself. And so uh, she worked in a boarding school that my brothers actually went to and I left there. So she dragged me to work for one day and I left there 12 years later as a school counsellor. And that really shaped and informed me because I just kept moving from one department to the other and the business manager said, keep turning up, we'll find some stuff for you to do. And so that led to me having an office where the students would call in and particularly boys because I think they would, yeah, it was sort of that conversational sort of stuff, everyday stuff that sort of happened in the school where they would feel comfortable coming in and chatting to me because they could be there for a, a number of different reasons. And so then I studied uh, counselling and what was really great about that was I always just had this really sense of doing things a little bit differently and so I worked with youth and always used stories and metaphor the school that I worked at was very 
um, well known for its AFL footballing. So I knew every metaphor about football to explain life. And that's sort of the basis for where I am now because I use symbolism and metaphor for people to reflect on where they're at, what they need, their stress, their burnout, everything like that. So I worked um, there for a while, worked for Canteen, as I said, uh, paediatric palliative care, and my business sort of happened at the same time um, because I was working part-time, just sort of people just started seeing me and then things grew from there. But what I love doing now is to help people prevent burnout because I've worked in caring industry where we have to be really mindful of how we're doing as well so that we can support others. And so that's what I really love and getting real about mental illness and what people actually experience because it can be really tough. And how do we support others to work through their stuff, but also how do we support ourselves and notice our warning signs and everything that sort of happens there. And I can tell you now, Phil, the reason why I love that is because I've been there myself. And even though I talk about this thing of burnout and stress and vicarious trauma and all that stuff, doesn't mean I'm immune from it myself. Um, And so it's something that for all of us is an ongoing process Mm. of how am I, how am I really, and how do I know? That's sort of my three key questions that I can ask. Um, at a lot of my workshops as well. And how do I know? So give us an example of what that looks like when you're working through this. So each of us have red flags that, you know, or little whispers that come to us when we're not doing okay. We have thing indicators. So for me, one of the things I know for myself is that when I can't remember names or I'll forget really mundane things I'm like oh there's one of my signs when my body feels heavy I'm like yeah there's something going on there that I need to shift I'm holding too much or um even though I don't like making decisions all the time when I can't make a decision um I know that's one of my big warning signs of you you're overloaded at the moment you've got too much going on and I can't think I'm numb I'm foggy um, there's so many different things or um, I used to think about some of the people I work with, you know, when they would normally be really well kept and then they're not or, you know, there's something a little bit different about people. So we all have signs and symptoms and things to show how we're doing and sometimes that's really obvious and sometimes it's really subtle things. Um, mm. Yeah. And we, can, we can be high functioning, I don't know if that's the right terminology, but really project a different image to what's really going on inside. Oh, definitely. And I know in my studio that the person on the outside of the room and the person on the inside of the room can be very different people. Um, And I also know for myself, I have um, post-traumatic stress and depression and anxiety, and I can still function a full day at work. But outside of work, um, sometimes I'm in bed um, and and can't do that. But luckily I can manage that and I I pace myself and and things like that. But, um, yeah, it's 
sometimes what's shown to the world and what's actually happening can be very, very different. And I think that's something for all of us to be aware of um, as well. Yeah. So it comes at a cost by the sounds of it. How do you pull back then? What do you do to when you realise, recognise that you know these symptoms are happening? Well, when I listen to them. <laughs> um, <laughs> <When>? Because Yeah. <laughs> Because that's the thing, like sometimes I look back and think, yeah, you had a few signs there that you were heading this way. Uh, One thing I've learned as I've got older as well is to honour what I want to do and need to do. So saying no and not packing my schedule too full. I mean, I sound like I'm probably 100 when I say I can't be out more than two or three nights a week. Um, oh, no, that's not 100. That's, yeah. not, that's normal in my world. So <laughs> thanks for owning up to that. Yeah, yeah. Or um, it might be like once upon a time. And I know one of my strong drivers in life is to work hard. And that's actually a, a distraction from what's happening. And so I'm still working on this, but not to be in the hustle and driving all the time because that's actually exhausting. And so it's like it's actually okay to have a morning off, take a day off, have a weekend, you know, that type of thing. So it's a constant process and that's what I work with other people on, but also I'm I'm needing to do that myself as well. Um, so one of the questions that I quite often will talk about is what's life-giving and what's life-taking? Um, and do the things that are life-giving, like make you feel lighter, connected, all of those types of things. And sometimes when I'm not doing well, there's a temptation to withdraw. And while that's good to refuel, it can be detrimental as well. So it's finding the balance of that, that sometimes, yeah, sometimes like yesterday I needed to not be out and about and just relax at home and and do not much where other times I need to actually reach out and connect. And mm. so it's it's about learning your own rhythms and cycles and and what you need in those moments as well. Mm. Yeah, it's a great self-awareness thing uh, for one. Um, but, yeah, then being able to push through and do it sounds like is, is, is the real. Yeah, and, the and this, yeah, the self-awareness of what are the things that are distracting you so I'm a shocking scroller on social media, um, and I know that if I'm doing that too much, I'm avoid. I may be avoiding other things. But see, I love. I'm fascinated with people, so I love scrolling. Um, but there's a difference between just a bit of scrolling to have a look at the world, and it being a distraction to things. But things like, um, you know, social media drinking, alcohol, you know, there's so many things, food, sugar, um, there's so many things that we can use as tools to avoid what's really happening. So I think it's about that self-awareness of, all right, what's happening here? What do I need to do with this for me and my own mental health and well-being? Mm. Um, Now, we did talk about this prior to recording and this topic of PTSD that you just mentioned. Mm. So for anyone listening, we, we're going to touch on it but not go into it in a lot of depth. But I just want to preface this with saying, as someone who hasn't experienced it, I was watching a reality show. Well, I wouldn't say it's like a normal fluffy reality show. It's quite hardcore people in, I guess, solo survival um, situations. 
called Alone Australia was the show. And one of the people in there and they're videoing themselves actually went into a episode of PTSD during, um, while he was filming and really talked through it as it was happening and which must've been incredibly difficult. But for someone who hasn't ever experienced it, it was incredibly educational. So I'm just wondering how would you describe what that is um, for someone who hasn't experienced it? I think one of the things that can be really confronting about post-traumatic stress disorder, particularly in people who have, you know, really huge symptoms and are triggered a lot, is the fact that it doesn't make sense, you know, that somebody um, is literally in a state where they cannot function, their brain has gone into fight or flight, they are back in the place that they were when some situation has happened. And um, that sort of case uh, with the alone um, person, it was the helicopter, wasn't it? That's what sort of happened. Yep. So um, that sense of being back at war and the sounds and their senses. So their whole body goes into um, distress and they can't move out of that um, as well. So for me, it's a, it's a little bit more subtle um, that, when I'm triggered and um, my friends know um, that there's certain sounds that I can't integrate and there's certain things that happen Um, and it's there's no rational way to tell me that that doesn't matter. Um, So for me, um, one of the incidences that I go back to, um, there was something on a um, speakerphone Um, and so now if I'm just walking down the street and someone's speaking on a speakerphone, if I'm really well, that will, I'll go, oh, that's really annoying, just watch that. But if I'm not well, um, that is like um, a bomb going off in my head um, and there's no rational way and I know consciously that that is not a threat to me but my body doesn't know that um, as well. So it's actually really complex and it works on lots and lots of levels, but it's the unconscious Mm. and a whole person's being is being debilitated because they are traumatized by a certain event and they go back to that event. Mm. Um, And yeah, I'm able to integrate my post-traumatic stress into every day, um, which I'm very grateful for, but some days um, it's harder than others. And I know there's people um, where even going outside the front door is a huge trigger. Um, as well so we just need to be mindful that it's not something you can just snap out of um, that it takes lots of work and um, processing and ongoing care um, for that to happen I'm glad you explained that and certainly uh, comes through um, that it's ongoing work um, is certainly required and and my better half is is a counsellor as well who deals with this and and I get the same message it's ongoing work it it can get better um but you've got to do the work. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, whether you have post-traumatic stress, mental illness, or, um, you know, haven't experienced that, that us checking in with ourselves regularly is really important um, so that we can alleviate the pressure and ensure that 
we're not having things fester and build up and all that type of thing. You know, we can get to the healing before the wound gets opened again. And I think um, as common practice, we should all be having that safe person to check in with and just look at life as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you. And uh, I should just also acknowledge um, that you you called it out, people walking down the street talking on their phone, on speakerphone. Yes, very annoying. <laughs> yeah, I just don't understand it, but also the fact that it's one of my triggers. So it's like it's it's even more, um, yeah, gets on yeah, my It's more than just nerves. annoying at times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what I want to um, now just go forward into what you're doing now because you do some great transformation work. And I think the session I was in with you, I think you called it transformation Oh, sorry, maybe one of the techniques, sorry, was transformation through symbolism. Is, yes. Was that correct? Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, what I do is I help people to look at their life. And so whether that's individually, um, I quite often now work with professionals or leaders and managers or um, going into organisations and helping people have a look at life. But we use art but it's actually the symbolism and metaphor, but the art's just the tool and the container for it all. And if you think about it, quite often we'll use metaphor or symbolism to describe something. And so what we're doing is we're using that to describe um, what's actually happening. So if I use an example, I one organisation I went into, they had a high staff turnover and wanted to have a look at well, how do we connect as a team and what do we need to do with this? So I got them to create what they thought the organisation was like. And one group did a bridge, built a bridge, um, and it was broken and had lots of bits falling off of it. Another was a train that was off its tracks and, <laughs> and none of the carriages were together. And... Another group did like a garden and none of the, it didn't have the right in, um, nutrients for the garden to grow. Uh, but one that really stands out is a house, a, a house that was on fire. <laughs> and so all it's of like... that, yeah, all of that symbolism describes what their organisation. So, and I'm sure we've all been in organisations, but if you walked into that workshop, Actually, the reception, it was in a boardroom and the receptionist opened the doors at one point. She said, can you guys all be quiet? Like, so we were talking about really serious stuff that if we talked about just in words alone would have ended in conflict. Like it would have been chaotic, potentially aggressive, people shut down, blaming sort of culture. But what we're able to do is to call the elephant in the room in a safe way because we're talking about a house on fire and then the most important part is the transformation in the symbolism where we go, well, what do we do with this? So how do we put the fires out? What do we need to be doing instead? What are the the risk management we need to do? Who are the fire people? Um, you know, what do we need to do as an individual, as a team and an organisation to help this situation? And so that's an example of how metaphor and symbolism can hold something really deep and heavy in a light way and a palatable way, and then we're able to move through things. So what I do is work with 
individuals and organisations to go, well, how do we do that? How do we get a better culture and have our well-being looked after and uh, create an environment where everyone wants to be there? And so I love that because also as facilitating it, I don't know what's about to come up either. And so it's about having that open conversation and being able to express what's really happening without it being awkward or um, ending in other conflict that doesn't Mm. necessarily need to be there. So we're able to talk about the hard stuff. That's great. So it sounds, I'm interpreting that as like you're stopping the clock at a point in time and almost lifting people out of their, the reality of the here and now to all reflect on where they're at together and and you're de-risking or you're making it safe in a way by using the symbolism. Yeah, definitely. And if we go back to, um, you know, even my experience as a nine, 10 year old, the art held it. Um, But also we're able to, yeah, that space to, press pause on the rest of the world and actually look at this and go, what is actually happening here? Um, but also not to shame people or for it to be a big deal. It's like, actually, we're just dealing with what's happening. Um, let's let's talk openly about that so that we can move through it rather than it be stuck and stay as it is because I don't think anyone wanted that or wants that when they're not, not travelling well. Yeah. So I hope... If you went back into that organisation today, I hope they're still not building broken bridges and houses burning down. Yeah, actually, it would be really interesting to go back there. I should do that and I should tell them that now that I've um, got got some great metaphors that people understand um, as well. And I remember being at a business breakfast where I talked about those examples and the whole room was like, yeah, we can all relate to that, but also reflecting on, well, if you were a metaphor or your organisation was a metaphor, what would it be? And then being able to go, well, what do we do with this now? Yeah. So mm. that's what I love is the the new perspectives and the way that people can see things differently just because the art has mirrored something back and then it's like, well, what do we do with this now? Yeah. And I've got to say to listeners that I've some of the things you taught us in that session I was in were fantastic from a presenter's point of view, just flipping the script a little bit more on bringing the audience into the conversation and not um, less speaking at them and more working with them, I think was really good. So I'll certainly be including your your links and, and various things that people can reference, um, including that video. Um, yeah, thank you. Video you sent as well, which is great. Um, but I'm going to just ask you one question before we go into a, a quick wrap. So the one um, question I have, what do you do in your downtime? What do you, what, what are your hobbies? What do you do to... Have a bit of fun. Well, this is always an interesting question that I can sometimes get a little bit like nervous about. Um, a lot of the things that I have, I love has become my work. So it used to be creativity, learning, um, that type of thing. But I'm trying to work a lot harder on um, having things that are separate to work because it's really important to transition and do that. So I love going for beach walks with my friends. We do that weekly. It was one of the gifts of covid uh, was that we start the only way we could see each other is if we walked and exercised together. So we do weekly walks on the beach, rain, hail or shine. And I love that because it's connecting back to nature, um, debriefing life, having fresh air, um, that type of thing. I love board games. I'm just a bit of a super nerd when it comes to that because 
And like at Christmas and things like that, my family was like, oh, here she goes again with her games. But I love board games in particular or even like, you know, sports and things like that as well because it's about the connection and the lightness and we're all doing something together and we can do that. But it also brings back really nice memories of being at our family shack and playing Yahtzee or, you know, and things like that. So it's about the connection that you do. Um, And one of the things that I really love is going to the movies and I love going to the movies by myself. Okay. I used to get really (laughs) self-conscious about that, but I love the whole sense of escaping into a story got my little frozen Coke and popcorn and just having peace and quiet and being in the moment um, there. I still love going with friends as well. Um, But yeah, I would say nature games and movies are probably my top three at the moment. Excellent. I like your top three. It's very good. Um, So I've got three quick questions. Just the first thing that really comes off the top of your head. And this is what I ask everyone. The first question is, in your life, what does purpose really mean to you? For me, purpose is about making a difference and feeling joyful in that. So it's about being in your zone, um, feeling light, really feeling like you're doing something beyond yourself and um, doing what you love and having Mm. fun doing it. Excellent. Full marks. Not that there are only marks here, but (laughs) question one. (laughs) Question two, what are you really looking forward to from here? I'm really looking forward to, Oh, so I've just turned um, the age my dad was when he died, uh, which is a really um, interesting place to be in, but I actually love being middle-aged and I'm really looking forward to seeing how my attitude, my sense of self, um, evolves from here. Like it's really exciting um, to think there's something shifting and changing as I get older and I'm really looking forward to seeing what that is. That could be that you only go out one night a week rather than two or three. <laughs> maybe I'll just flip it on its head and go out every uh, night. Who yeah, knows? Yeah, maybe you go six or seven. Okay. <laughs> third, third question from your journey, if someone was earlier on in their career, uh, what would you what would a tip be that you might have about finding the right pathway or finding meaning and purpose in that in that career trajectory? I think one of the really interesting things that we can sometimes feel the pressure to is to know where we're going. But I feel like I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, but I didn't even know that existed. And it's like the path opened for me. I was obviously open to taking opportunities and things like that, but it worked out and one thing led to another that led to another um, that I think you don't have to have it all worked out Um, and things shift and change. You know, I've had a couple of jobs that they were my dream job when I got them, but there was time to transition and move to something else and challenge myself in other ways. And so I think that's the thing is not to get too fixed on what it looks like Uh, to let it evolve and see how it goes and come back to I'm enjoying this for now and we'll see see what happens um, as well. Yeah, so I think that's the thing. I've been very lucky. I feel like my career has sort of 
accidentally unfolded, but it's been very deliberate and exactly what I needed to do. So, yeah. I think it's interesting that of the uh, 12 or so episodes that have gone before this one, I'm sure that has come up in at least half of them fairly unprompted. Um, it was a sense of serendipity in part, but but just a you know maybe sometimes going with the flow, other times being a little bit more direction seeking. But um, I think and you're also reflecting. yeah, and also yeah. part of that is amazing people that you meet along that path who can influence you and um, help you be better and see something in you that you can't see yet and suggest something, and then it's like, well, do you take the opportunity or not? Um, yeah, it's still yeah. entirely up to you. That's great. Well, I'm going to put the links to to you and your your business, which is Ignite Wellbeing Company, in the show notes and a couple of other links that we've talked about. And I've uh, really enjoyed you being willing to share your journey with us, Bill. So thanks for coming on. Thank you, Phil. I've really appreciated it. Well, what an interesting discussion with Belle and the way her life and her career has unfolded, very much in response to what resonated and seemed to be right at the time. Three things I took away, and there was many, but of course I, I bring it down to three. One, she talked about the value of having a safe space to express her thoughts and things she had struggled to articulate before. And even though she said it was a pretty weird thing what happened in that school situation, but being sent to a psychologist was really a chance for her to unload and express feelings she'd had, um, which was really beneficial. Secondly, she talked about her own challenges, and I liked that skill she had in being able to check in on herself. Even though she says it's not 100% effective, she does know the signs and what to look out for, and her friends know as well. And thirdly, her vocation, which involves the use of symbolism, to increase individuals or groups' understandings of situations. And how could we forget the picture of the broken bridge, the train off the tracks and the house on fire? It would be funny if it wasn't so sad at the same time. There's links and more information in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed this, please give the show a rating so more people can find us. And message me if you want to bring the learning into organisations you work with or for. My details are in the show notes too. Until next time, I'm Phil Preston, and you've been listening to The Purpose Edge.